out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastor and this is the C86 Show, once again bringing you the finest in indie pop and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be Danny Goldberg, who was one-time manager of Nirvana. So I brought that interview, well I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into the usual three little easy to digest segments for your enjoyment alongside the usual award-worthy playlists. But to get the party on the road, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Smells Like Teen Spirit.
more chop and sounds that is nirvana and the track titled you guessed it uh, smells like teen spirit from the album bleach this is david esau this is the c86 show and this week's special guest is going to be danny goldberg who co-managed nirvana from 1990 to 1994 make a note i will test you at the end but more importantly I think. He also has just written and, and published a book titled Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. So um, yes, I decided to catch up with him in New York because uh, we spare no expense here on the show uh, to find out more about those interesting years. And also, if you're interested, uh, he has written a lot of other books, including a fantastic one, which was uh, based around the 60s. And that is titled In Search of the Lost Chord. Do check it out. It might just change your life. Anyway, look, before we have the first part of the interview, I think we're going to play um, a track from the album Bleach, which was personally my favourite. And this is school. And then the first part of the interview. Anyway, Nirvana, take it away. Indeed, it's all in the lyrics. There you go. That uh, that is Nirvana and the track title "School" that came from their 
probably 1989 album Bleach, which I thought was a classic. And I saw them on that particular tour where they were supporting Tad at, well, quite a lot of places, including the Norwich Arts Centre. And um, bizarrely, I managed to interview the band. And I must one day use that, get that tape and put it onto MP3 and then play that as well, because um, it's fascinating stuff. Anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Danny Goldberg, where I began by talking about, um, yes, sometimes that tricky second album and also the five year narrative of a lot of bands. Whereas in this case, the second album with Nirvana was particularly um, successful compared to Bleach which was still a classic and it came out on the Sub Pop record label. And I'm just curious to know if Danny had been aware of those early years of the band. And this was his answer. Danny, take it away. Well, I, I, I heard about them through um, Sonic Youth. We, we, you know, I had a company then um, that was, met, uh, uh, you know, with older artists. Uh, you know, I was 40 at this time in 1990 and, and had uh, Bonnie Raitt, who just won the Grammy for Album of the Year, and the Allman Brothers, and, you know, kind of that generation of rock and roll and business built around that. So I hired a younger guy because I knew there was a new generation of, uh, you know, indie punk-influenced rock coming along that I wasn't so tuned into. But, I, you know, and, and, and together we signed Sonic Youth. And then Thurston from Sonic Youth told me uh, that Nirvana was like the best band that he had scene and I had complete trust in him um, you know he was like one of the great curators of that era of, of uh, indie bands so many artists who went on to have decent careers started as the uh, support act on Sonic Youth Tours and um, you know this was the uh, fall of 1990 Bleach had been out for a year or whatever uh, so this was after you had seen them but not that much after uh, and uh, they wanted to, uh, you know, get on a major label, and they wanted to have managers, and they, I think they wanted to meet with me for the same reason I had wanted to meet with them, because Sonic Youth, you know, uh, gave the seal of approval. So uh, they came to the office in the fall of 90, and, you know, we had one meeting, and then we were their manager. Yes, that all came together, because cause what few people probably realise now, but at the time, and you mentioned Sonic Youth, was that when, um, uh, and this was the same in the UK, we, as those kind of very fickle fans, only like bands who are on independent labels. So if anybody ever signed to a major, it kind of caused great upset and ripples. And so Sonic Youth were the ones who did one, went to Geffen Records, and obviously Sub Pop to, um, yes, to a major. It proved to, to a lot of other artists that, 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 you know, they didn't give up any... That's why Sonic Youth hired us, was they were on Geffen, and they wanted management to make sure that they could, you know, be kind of protected and everything that mattered to them. And they found that, uh, you know, there were no, you know, I talked to Thurston for the book about this, you know, there was no disadvantage at all to them. They had 100% creative control over the record, over the artwork, over how they were marketed. But, you know, unlike on the indie labels, they were able to get paid. So they, uh, you know, they kind of showed a lot of the community that there was no inherent uh, taboo uh, and uh, and Kurt certainly took note of this, uh, you know, because he uh, he wanted to control everything about his art, but he also wanted to reach a big audience and get paid for it. Yes, yeah. and it's interesting uh, because I've I've interviewed you know I do a show which is um which is kind of based on a lot of the eighties indie bands from the UK and and sort of I didn't realize this but none of them made any money and being on the indie label proved to be as disastrous as probably being on any ill, just bad business mostly, where you know, they didn't get any money and the people who ran the labels weren't always that together for various reasons. So 
it didn't prove. I think, well, just going back on my question or point there was that um, there was a thing, I think, in the UK where success was looked upon with great suspicion as well. So we we have yeah. a, we have a weird relationship with anything to do with being too successful. We kind of don't like it in the UK. America is probably a bit different. Well, I think it depends on the artist, you know, in the UK or in America. I'm always a little wary of these generalizations. I think there are certain artists that really feel uh, uh, more comfortable in, a, in an indie situation, uh, knowing more personally the people that are putting out the records. Uh, and, uh, you know, not every artist cares about being successful. There's no question about it. A lot of them want to just reach a certain audience and be part of a subculture and that that's what they want. But there are other people who are just as much integrity and just as creative who happen to have another notion of what they want to do with their creativity. And Kurt was in that category. He definitely, uh, again, he never compromised on his art, but he, he was, uh, his art included the idea of doing what he did, which was reaching a mass audience. Yes. So coming to your book, which has just come out, I mean, it, um, you waited 25 uh, years to tell the story. I mean, um, which is a quarter of a century. Did you, um, yeah. was, was that sort of a deliberate thing? Did you sort of feel like you needed to, to have some distance and well, process? Well, I mean, it went in different phases. I mean, part of it was, yeah, the first decade after his death, I really was, uh, you know, not in a psychological position to really want to think about, about him too much, and uh, it was too painful. And then, you know, the other factor over this 25-year period of time is I've had, uh, you know, a day job. I've been in the music business as a label executive for the first part of that period of time and then as a manager since then. And, uh, you know, only only in the last few years did I develop a schedule and a control of my business and hit a point in my life where I had the time to write. I always knew if I was going to do this, I wanted to do it myself. It's not something, it's my fourth book. It's the second one published in the UK, but it's the fourth one that I've written. The first two were just published in the US. And, and you know, I write them myself. I don't have any co-writers or ghostwriters or anything like that. And that takes a lot of time. So uh, it, it had to do with, with the rhythm of my own life and having the time and coming after the last book that you mentioned, I really wanted to write another one. I, it was a very good experience for me, the press of writing it and publishing it. And, you know, it, it, it you know, I, I felt I was finally figuring out how to do this. <clears throat> and, um, and then obviously I was aware that it was going to be the 25th anniversary of Kurt's death and that there's a certain, uh, you know, advantage you get in trying to sell something to a publisher because the publisher can get a certain level of media attention when something, one of those kind of anniversaries. I had just been through that with In Search of the Lost Chord came out proximate to the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love. And, you know, so you know, knowing that I, and, and I felt if I was ever going to do it, this was the time to do it, you know, therefore. So uh, it wasn't really that I waited as much as this was just the right time between my own schedule and, enough distance from it to uh you know to feel i could do i could do it you know yes and and i noticed that um you would you, you sort of focused on those years that you worked with him so you didn't feel you wanted to add anything you know the the the, uh, the early years did it was that no no it's not a biography i think there's good biographies of kurt and and that's uh, this is a memoir uh, it's 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 a, it's it's my portrait of him based on my experience of working with him. It's not everything about him. I was one of his managers. I did develop a real friendship with him, but, you know. But still, I was older and you know primarily involved with his career. You know, part of his life and uh, 
And uh, yeah, I just wanted to describe my my experiences working with him during what ended up being the last three and a half years of his life from that meeting that I mentioned to you, which was, like I said, whatever, slightly more than a year before, never mind, came out, you know, up until his uh, death. So it's subjective. It's 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 through my eyes. Uh, you know, I did talk to about 40 other people, but they were all people that I knew then and people that were kind of part of my work with him, you know, to help me remember and to just broaden the narrative a little bit. But, but I, yeah, there's, there's other, if you want to know about his early life, that's the, there's other books to read. Yes, absolutely. And, and what's, I mean, what did you, I mean, because obviously managing somebody like Kirk and, and Nevada must have been just kind of an amazing experience, which nothing prepared you for in a way, even though you'd manage other people because this, you know, they were just so big. Did you, did you feel a little bit like this was kind of a sort of strange trip, you know, the way it just kind of got bigger and bigger. And, and well, it was really exciting. I mean, I'd been around in the business for a while. I started when I was 19, so I'd already been in the business for 20 years. And, uh, you know, I'd started the, the, the management company some years earlier and was quite happy to be involved with the phenomenon and something that was not only incredibly successful, but also sort of culturally so important and influential. And it was a uh, you know, so the initial part of it was just very exciting because, uh, uh, you know, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit as a song uh, uh, exploded with great velocity all over the world once it was on the radio for, you know, a week or two, almost everywhere. It was, you know, it became a, 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 a big hit. So it was a very quick explosion and that was uh that part of it was great and everything one dreams of when you're you know kind of in the music business and then and then the you know the parallel thing is dealing with the human beings involved and because of the way things developed the dynamic of people around the band and then the band itself it turned out i became kind of the person who dealt with kurt more you know than than the, than the other guys and um you know, there were ups and downs, uh, you know, uh, during that period of time emotionally that, that, you know, that success doesn't necessarily, you know, address, but that, you know, dealing with dealing with the problems of the day are part of the job. So, I mean, I, I, no two artists are the same, so you never can be completely prepared for working with any artist because the whole thing that makes them artists is that they're individuals, they have their own unique way of doing things, but there were certainly aspects of the business part of it that I was very familiar with, dealing with the media, dealing with, you know, promoters, record companies, budgets, you know, uh, you know, those things I was, you know, been around for a long time and didn't daunt me, you know, and, uh, you know, but, uh, but the, the specific emotional issues that came up were, you know, of that moment and, you know, there were good days and bad days. Yes. And what was your, I mean, obviously you, you also ex experienced that early period, which must have felt, when you looked at the narrative of that period, did it feel like almost someone writing this story, you know, thinking, yes, this is the kind of honeymoon period where everything was just hunky-dory and then slightly the tricky and then the kind of the latter half where it all started to sort of, everything started to come apart? Well, um you know, when they were in Los Angeles, uh, you know, they, they, they recorded Nevermind in Los Angeles, even though they were still living up in Washington State, and they rented, uh, we rented them a short-term, you know, apartment there, and they rehearsed constantly, and that was just a nice, innocent time they were rehearsing. Kurt had a very uh, strong work ethic, you know, as much as he could kind of be a slacker at times in his life when it came to his art, he was, uh, 
you know, eight hours a day, go over it again and again, get it right. You know, they were incredibly well rehearsed when they went into the studio later, you know, to, to record. And, uh, you know, that was just, they were around, they ran out of the office, that was uh, pleasant. They were one of a lot of different things that were going on in my in my life. And then when the record, um, you know, was recorded, even, you know, the early mixes, which weren't the final ones, um, you know, it was obvious that, that, that this was a great record and that uh, it was a, it was an evolution from Bleach in terms of the songwriting. And, uh, you know, I'd, we'd already heard some of the songs because they had demoed in Bloom, Lithium and Polly, you know, before they met us, you know, and, and, uh, but it smells like Teen Spirit came a little later and, you know, we, we knew it was really good. And then there was the whole thing of, you know, dealing with the label and figuring out, uh, if there's, you know, getting it remixed and the artwork and all of the mechanics of getting a release going, which was, you know, a, a upbeat, pleasant time. There was excitement at the label. Nobody knew how big it was going to be, but everyone felt it was a cool thing to be involved with. And then, uh, you know, the success was explosive, and that you know, the album comes out at the end of September, and by, you know, in three or four weeks, we know we've got a, you know, a tiger by the tail. Uh, and then in January, when they did Saturday Night Live, was the first time uh, I became aware that Kurt was uh, doing heroin, and uh, I think a lot of people first became aware of it, uh, you know, uh, that day. Uh, and... Uh, so that entered the whole new chapter of the shadow of, you know, the shadow of a drug problem. So, you know, it went through different phases, but uh, that's what the book is about, just trying to go through those three and a half years. And, you know, like I said, they were, it was definitely a roller coaster. Yes. But at the center of it was somebody who was truly brilliant, uh, you know, uh, really one of the great artists that rock and roll ever produced. And also somebody who's a very sweet guy. Uh, you know, he had his demons. He did kill himself, but his darkness was interdirected. He was not dark to other people. He was nice to other people. And that is the first part of my interview with Danny Gelberg, talking about his years with Kurt Cobain and the band. Anyway, and uh, like I said, the book has just come out. It's a fantastic read. It's titled Serving the Servant and uh, Remembering Kurt Cobain. Worth tracking down. Anyway, I think we'll break the interview up there and play a track and then some more chat. This is going to be Rape Me. Rape me. Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me Thank you. 
Rape me, my friend. Rape me. Rape me again. Keeping the party going. There you go. That is Nirvana and the track titled Rape Me. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Danny Goldberg, where I'd been talking about uh, Kurt Cobain's, well, one of his favourite books that was titled Perfume. I know. Uh, written by Patrick uh, Suskins. And um, I was just kind of curious to know a little bit more about uh, Danny's reaction to that. It was a fascinating point I made. You can tell. Anyway, this is it. Danny. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah that song, yeah, Sandless Apprentice, I guess, was uh, inspired by that. Uh. Yes. And when you, I mean, obviously, was he the first artist you'd worked with who'd had a, such a serious drug problem? No, no, he was not. So I just wondered if, you, if that was something that you'd had experience and thought, ah, oh, I, know, I know what I need to do to try and... Well, I, I, I knew what you could try to do, you know. Uh, no, unfortunately, for better or for worse, uh, you know, I, like I said, I'd worked for Led Zeppelin as their publicist in the 70s, and there were drugs around then, and there were the other artists I'd worked with and other people that I knew, that not all of them artists, that had had... Uh, you know, we're alcoholics or drug addicts. Uh, so, you know, the only thing I know that works is the 12-step program. And, and if you can get people into it and they like it and they stick with it, it's it's got a very high rate of success. And it's, uh, uh, you know, many people very close to me, you know, have had their lives turned around for the better because of it. But it's not for everybody. And uh, some people just don't like it or they don't feel they don't relate to it or it doesn't speak to them. And Kurt was in that latter category. So, you know, uh, it's, 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 the first idea is easy rehab and 12 steps, you know, with, but what to do if that doesn't work, you know, just love the person, pray, try to keep introducing them to, you know, whether it's somebody that's into meditation or a doctor or a therapist, you know, uh, whatever, and hope that, hope that they find something that works for them. But, but it's not like there's any, uh, uh you know, scientific uh, textbook about how to deal with people with these problems. You know, yes. it's a, no matter how experienced you are, each individual person with with an addiction is uh, is an intense uh, and unique uh, prospect. Yes, and one thing I've noticed in a lot of interviews and being obsessed with music is that there's kind of like waves of not only do most bands seem to have a five year narrative of what I found, you know, like they have two years getting together, making a sound, get that first album. And in this country, you know, John Peel giving it a play, doing a John Peel session, often gave them that sort of the first kind of bit of a yeah. tour, then the second album, and then things got tricky. And, and then the other thing that sort of catches bands, apart from the admin and the publicity, and not the publishing, is also musical 
genre, the styles start to change. You know, so you had a, in this country you had a lot of indie stuff in the 80s, and then dance music came along, and just when that was really happening, then the grunge scene came along, and then quite I don't know three four years then Britpop sort of came so do you yeah, ever sort yeah. of think as as with Kurt and his kind of his kind of when you listen to those albums did you sort of think where he was going to be going next you know I just wondered what what well you... I had a great first of all you know um I really romanticized him and I think that hopefully that comes across the book but I recognized him as a really brilliant brilliant person and uh, there was no question in my mind that he was going to keep changing and evolving and wasn't just somebody who happened to fit into one trend. Um, you know, he hated that word grunge because he thought it was kind of a simplistic thing to lump a lot of different artists together who happened to have certain superficial things in common but were actually quite different from each other. And certainly he was different from, you know, Mud Honey. I mean, I you know, he loved Mark Arm. He loved Mud Honey, but... You know, my daddy didn't have any songs with choruses that you could hum, and they didn't have those kind of lyrics based, you know, based on a, you know, uh, you know, or or uh, that kind of cultural, uh, you know, uh, or musical qualities. You know, they 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 were their own thing. Uh, so, my assumption with Kurt uh, was that he like and somebody like Neil Young, or you know, uh, would would keep uh, changing and uh, continue to connect with some of the roots that inspired him when he was a kid, the punk, the indie punk scene of the 80s, but would also uh, grow into a lot of other uh, areas. You know, he, he he listened to all different kinds of music. He culturally loved the punk attitude and their politics and honored what it meant to him when he was younger because it, it gave him a sense of belonging that he didn't get from his everyday life. But musically, you know, he listened to pop music, he listened to folk music, he listened to heavy metal. I mean, he had a extremely sophisticated musical mind and i don't think he would have been limited just by the trends of one particular time that doesn't mean he would ever have the kind of uh, phenomenology of you know what nevermind was again few artists are able to do that you know more than once you know even bob dylan you know who's had you know my favorite artist you know has had many different phases of his career but they haven't equaled the intensity of you know, Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde. But, um, you, you know, I, I don't think Kurt would have felt, uh, you know, uh, imprisoned by one particular sound. Uh, I'm positive he would have kept growing and changing. Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Neil Young, because I, I always think of Neil Young and also the other person, I suppose, my go-to person and first love was David Bowie. And um, having seen right, his, exactly. his, have seen his career, that I always think when an artist, an artist is a real artist, when they've, when they've done their low album and it's like you've just completely burnt everything, <laughs> you know, it's like you just kind of, you're going to confuse the lot, you know. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that low album must have been just such a shocker. You know, we look back on it with wise and, oh, yeah, it's marvellous. But at the time... The critics hated it. You know, people slammed it. And Bowie must have just wondered what was going to come next. But obviously now, you know, it's fine. So I, I suppose Kurt Cobain would have probably done something quite radical just to have just completely done done something in a similar style, I guess. And, and Neil Young was somebody who just quite enjoyed it just because he needed to do that, whatever that was, you know, that next musical trend. Yeah, I think Kurt was on that list. I think when I think of what kind of are there his peers over the arc of rock and roll history, definitely David Bowie, Neil Young, 
Dylan, you know, to me, the, 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 he's on that short list of people who I think would would keep reinventing himself. Always, always connected to his origins. He he, he was always going to honor that. But he 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 uh, he had a, a very um, you know a sophisticated uh, mind. You know, uh, and and as I say, li- definitely listened to a lot of different kinds of music. So, you know, uh, uh, even within his short life. You know, he showed a lot of different sides of himself, and you know, the unplugged to me was not just a marketing moment because it came out a few months. You know, he taped that show a few months after In Utero, and it was part of extending kind of the presence of Nirvana on MTV. You know, for that following year, but it was also a work of art in itself, and you know, bringing on the Meat Puppets, doing those songs. There were like half of the songs on Unplugged he'd never done before publicly. You know, it was completely different from any other unplugged records, and I think that was that was an experiment creatively for him. You know, it could have informed his future work, but even even at that moment, he was already you know trying different things. He was just that kind of guy. Yes. And what's your favorite memory and and sort of you know moment that you often, when you want to and you can, you know, look back at Kurt and just um, reflect on those years? You know. Um, when you do the book like this, you end up doing interviews and, uh, you know, the whole process of it was to try to codify and tell memories and then repeat them. And, you know, it's so that has kind of a weird effect on, you know, uh, on, on the whole idea of singling something out. So as I'm talking to you now, you know, what comes to me are just certain quiet moments with him, just the, sweetness and subtlety of his mind and 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 and, and heart he he was again he, he did have a dark side I, I don't believe that i sugarcoat that in the book but that was not his only side and uh you know there was there was a certain side of him that was uh you know a sardonic uh, smile you know uh, that that really stays with me, and it doesn't lend itself to the sort of soundbite anecdote. Uh, I I tried to put all those anecdotes in the in the book, and uh, believe me, I I uh, I could list four or five things he did that I was around for that were, you know, when he did Top of the Pops and just suddenly decided to change the arrangement of it uh, of it Smells Like Teen Spirit and kind of croon the song like Morrissey. I was there for that. It was like unbelievable. He just thought of that on the moment because he didn't want to repeat himself because he'd already done teen, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" on, on the on the on the word. And uh, you know, I never saw an artist just in real time do something that creative, it, you know, deconstructing their own hit like just weeks after it had come out. You know, uh, but uh, the memories that stay with me the most are just sort of just hanging out with him and and just how nice he was. You know, and and. Uh, and uh, just wishing I could freeze those moments uh, for him and for myself, because he, he, he had a tremendous uh, heart, you know, and, uh, you know, when he wasn't depressed and freaked out, but he, 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 he was quite a deep, deep fellow. Yes. And what's your relationship like with Courtney and, and the other members of the band? Uh, Courtney's pretty good. You know, it's been 25 years and there's been different ups and downs. In terms of this last couple of years, while I was researching and writing the book, I did reconnect with Courtney. It's meant a great deal to me. I really love her, as I think it comes across. And I, uh, I, um, uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, was happy to talk to her a couple of times, uh, you know, plus texting, you know, for the book. So I, I, th- I think it's, I think it's good. You know, I mean, she lives in L.A. I live in New York. It's, I've only seen her a couple of times in the last year, but I've 
we you know we text them you know every once in a while and and it's including since the book has been published over the last couple of months and and I I, I love her very much and I appreciate very much what what uh, you know her help uh, Chris and I have always stayed in touch because we shared kind of political views as well and he's uh, quite active in American politics really a uh, very knowledgeable about certain issues particularly kind of electoral reform and uh, he'll off, he'll he'll usually be in New York once a year or so and he usually looks me up when he is so I'd seen him you know over the years pretty frequently the most of any of anybody and uh, but when I did the book we and we did an interview for it was really the first time the two of us had ever talked about Kurt since Kurt died so that was a, you know that was a very meaningful to me um Dave I never was particularly close to uh, it was I was busy doing a lot of other things as brilliant as he was, I didn't know how brilliant he was. I always joked that if I'd known how talented he was, I would have spent more time with him. But he was he was the drummer. He was their fourth drummer. He was a great drummer. He was a great guy, super friendly and smart and easy to deal with. But he was not at the center of sort of the decisions about, you know, media strategy, touring. You know, he, he kind of, well, you know, Kurt kind of made all those decisions. And, uh, you know, because of what else was going on in my life in those years, I did never got to know him that well and, and uh, did ask him if he wanted to talk to me for the book. He didn't. So uh, that's the range of, of, uh, of the connectivity. Indeed. And that's the second part of my interview with Danny Gelberg. Um, I think I'll break it up there, play one more track, and then the last part of the interview. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram, which is just go to at C86 Show. And also all the shows have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbean, The Magic Four. Anyway, this is going to be taken from a John Peel session, and this is That's Molly's Lips from the John Peel session that was taken probably from 1990. 
all sometime. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Danny Goldberg, who, um, yes, I was talking about his, <laughs> the deadline, because obviously this is celebrated, well, not celebrating, but marking the 25th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. And also a few years ago, I'd interviewed him about a book titled In Search of the Lost Chord. Um, and I was kind of curious to know about his um, deadlines. I know, I'm an interesting sort of chap when it comes to asking questions. So I was, um, yes, wondering if the pressure was on. I kind of think um, I knew the answer to this, by the way. Anyway, this was Danny's reply. To yeah, Tony's yeah, it was two books in a row where I had a pretty hard deadline in order to have it be published, uh, uh, you know, around an anniversary that, you know, was part of the kind of uh, PR strategy for the book. And, uh, you know, what I've learned is deadlines are good for me. You know, it's, uh, you're never going to, uh, I'm never going to be happy completely with what I write. I go back and look at these books and see certain sentences that irritate me and that I you know, wouldn't mind rewriting. Uh, but I think that, that knowing that there's a deadline to me really forced me to make choices and, uh, and uh, that, that I think uh, was much more positive than negative. But, yeah, I wrote this book in about nine months. Well, wow, that's Start fast. to finish. That was fast. And... and um... You know, because obviously you, know, you must have sometimes wanted to park a lot of this, then bringing it all back. Was it quite a difficult kind of uh, roller coaster, you know, emotional sort of kind of journey as you started having to sort of unlock things? Because obviously to make the book interesting and also to, to think, well, I'm not going to do another book, so I've just got to sort of deal with it. Did that bring back a lot of stuff? Well, you know, his death obviously is very painful to think about and the things leading up to his death and, and the failure to help him deal with his uh, addiction and everything is, is not that pleasant. Uh, on the other hand, thinking about the other parts of his life was really pleasant and sharing that with the people I interviewed, you know, because most of the people I talked to, you know, were just had happy memories of him. He was a very beloved guy by the people that knew him. Not everyone who's talented is also uh, nice, but he was. So, uh, you know, uh, I like sharing that with people. And then, then there's the sheer mechanics of doing a book uh, are so consuming to just try to make it readable and to make it flow and to, and to have as much life in it as possible, especially on a subject who's been written about as much as Kurt has been. Because it's not like I had new information. I just was trying to paint a portrait that was new, but with the same information because his life during the three and a half years I'm describing was completely documented. So, um, you know, but, but there's no question that, that there are some, um, you know, uh, painful moments in the, in the process. Yes, and because often when one has that kind of love affair with a band and, and an artist and, and albums, you often sometimes have a period of not listening. Do you do you sort of still listen, you know, after the, all these years? To well, I did, I hadn't, you know, and then when I was writing the book, I listened a lot because I just liked hearing his voice. It just tried to tune me into him. I'm trying to just remember him and tune into his spirit, and the, the, hopefully that would allow me to to write in a way that would bring him more to life for people. Uh, so I listened to him a lot while I was, while I was writing the book. I listened to a lo the music a lot, and I listened to a number of his interviews just to hear his voice uh, talking and remember it. So there was a period during the writing when I was really saturated with that, and also, you know, with the videos on YouTube and all that stuff. Uh, uh, in general, um, you know... Uh, you know, since then, not as often, you know, I mean, there was a period, like I said, the first 10 years after he died, I don't think I listened to Nirvana once, you know, 
So it's just they go through different cycles with it. But uh, while I was writing the book, I listened a lot. Yes. And just lastly, I mean, do you think, you know, because there's been a lot about um, Kurt, do you think, you know, do you think this will sort of add much to the legacy and sort of keep this sort of spirit of him sort of going? I just wondered if, if you feel like this will sort of um, add to the story of his life. And um... You know, it's so hard to know how other people perceive it. You know, I'm very appreciative. I've gotten certain notes from people that really like it. And other people I kind of haven't heard from, and I wonder what they think of it. And it got mostly good press. I appreciate that. But, you know, these books take a long time to read a book and to really understand the impact of it. It's only been out two months. And uh, I don't, you know, I, I hope it adds to his legacy. I hope it, it, it adds another dimension to it. It seemed to me uh, that that the uh, footprint was darker than it should be. Uh, that that uh, documentary montage of Heck to me was a little darker uh, portrait of him than I was comfortable with. I thought it was an authentic artistic work, done you know sincerely and with a lot of thought. But it didn't uh, it it didn't represent my memory. Didn't comport with my memories of him as much. It, and 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 I just thought that uh, that it might be useful. You know, hopefully, you know, to have another portrait of him but you know how, how what it ends up meaning i have no idea you know uh, maybe in a couple of years we'll get a better sense of proportion about that i just kind of had to put my head down do it and then there's the process after it comes out of talking about it you know and then you know uh, at some point maybe by the end of the year i'll have a little more perspective on on how it's how it fits in but i i i think it belongs there on the shelf with any other nirvana or kirk book you know i there's a, there's a few good books out there about them, but I, I think this is also a good one. Yes, well, you're definitely in that position. Just and just really lastly, do you, do you think there was anything that could have saved him? You know, when you sort of look back at it and sort of reflect, or was it just kind of an? I, I don't know. You know, nothing I could think of at the time. That's for sure. Uh, it wasn't like a lot of us, not just me, but there were a number of people who loved him very much, who were aware of his uh, problems with drugs and his. Uh, you know, depressions and everything like that. And, uh, you know, a lot of us were a lot of pretty smart people who well connected with, you know, asking around again against therapy and are there, are there, are there different types of therapists or the different, uh, are there any uh, spiritual paths? Is there any antidepressants or, you know, chemical approach to this? And, uh, you know, everybody that, that I know asked everybody we all knew, uh, and uh, obviously we failed to come up with a, a solution, you know. So uh, I don't know um, what I don't know. I only know what I did know. Among the things that I did know, none of them helped. Uh, but was there some phone call I could have made that if only I had had the phone number? I don't know. You know, I, I can't go back in time. And and uh, but But in general... I think that uh, suicide is a weird human thing that has been around as long as people, you know, have kept track of these things. In America, you know, I think it's 60,000 people last year killed themselves. Three-fourths of them were men, half of them with guns. And I think a lot of them had people around them who loved them and who wished they hadn't done it. You know, uh, even if they weren't great artists, uh, you know, they still leave a horrible wound in the hearts and minds of the people that were close to them. Uh, a friend of mine in L.A., people, very well-loved guy in the music business named Gary Stewart. I don't know if that's a name you know, but he was at Rhino Records, was the, responsible for all their great compilations and incredibly 
beloved figure in the community, very generous, uh, you know, almost a purist about music who, you know, you know, jumped off a building a few weeks ago in the early 60s. It was a total shock to people. And many people around him loved him. And, you know, again, he had therapy and he tried different things. And, you know, it's just, it's a mystery of the human mind why some people kill themselves. I don't think there's a simple answer to it. Or uh, if you just do A, B, and C, you guarantee that they don't do it. You know, I, I think if that were the case, there wouldn't be so many suicides. So uh, I don't have much to say about that. I didn't, uh, haven't done extensive research on it. I did a little bit because I just wanted to get a sense of the, the range of opinions about it. Uh, you know, um, Eric Erlinson, the former guitar player of Hole, who was also a very good friend of Kurt and someone who spoke to me for the book, you know, did a little more research on suicide in general. And he wrote a kind of impressionistic poetic book called Letters to Kurt. It's, it's quite moving. Uh, but, you know, uh, there's nobody knows why people kill themselves. That's what I believe. It's, it's, a, it's a mystery that science and religion and philosophy have not cracked yet. So... I'm no exception to that. I haven't figured it out either. Indeed, a tricky subject. Anyway, that is the last part of my interview with Danny Goldberg talking about um, his time managing Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. Um, and, and as I said, and probably <laughs> repeat myself, um, this is to do with the book that has just been published, which is Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. And it's out on Trapeze Publishing and also, I think in the UK, Orion Books and available from all good bookshops. Anyway, this has been David Esau. This has been The C86 Show. Um, I could give you my contact details, but I've done that already, and I think that now sounds a bit desperate and needy, so I won't. But we'll leave you with another track. This is um, taken from his, or their, MTV Unplugged special and the David Bowie track, The Man Who Sold the World. Have a great week.
That was a David Bowie song. another one I could screw up. What is it? Am I going to do this by myself? Yeah. Do it by yourself. Okay. Well, I think I'll try it in a different key. I'll try it in the normal key. Yeah. If it sounds bad, these people are just going to have to wait. We'll do it. <laughs> 